this conversation with Dr. Peter Frankel, we discussed last chance couples therapy, the role of pleasure, culture, and humor in the therapy relationship. After podcast, I am Naveed Zamani and I am your host. In this session, I'll be speaking with Dr. Peter Frankel. Peter Frankel, PhD, is Associate Professor of Psychology at City College of New York, former faculty at the Ackerman Institute for the Family and NYU Medical Center, and is in private practice in New York City. He has published and lectured on a wide range of topics, including temporal issues in couples, integrative approaches to couple and family therapy, couple distress prevention, Couple and Family Coping with the COVID-19 Pandemic, Last Chance Couple Therapy, A Family-Based Approach to Incest, Collaborative Methods and Community-Based Family Program Development, Narrative Therapy-Based Multiple Family Group Interventions for Families and Homeless Shelters, Training in Intersectionality Sensitivity, and Qualitative Research. He is a co-author of The Relational Trauma of Incest, A Family-Based Approach to Treatment, Sync Your Relationship, Save Your Marriage, Four Steps to Getting Back on Track, and of the forthcoming book, Last Chance Couple Therapy, Bringing Relationships Back from the Brink. Dr. Frankel lectures and conducts therapist trainings internationally, and he received the American Family Therapy Academy's 2012 Award for Innovative Contribution to Family Therapy, and with Marcia Scheinberg and Fiona True, after his 2004 Award for Distinguished Contribution to Family Therapy Theory and Practice. He is a former vice president and current board member of AFTA and a reviewer for several family therapy journals. Thank you so much for joining me here today, Dr. Frankel. It's really nice to be with you. Uh, curious, what's capturing your attention these days? Hey, David. Uh, and Peter is fine, please. Yes. Hello, AFTA, beloved members. Um, what's catching my attention is working with couples on the brink of relationship dissolution, either separation and divorce, if they're formally married, or dissolving the relationship if they've uh, not made a marital commitment. I've been working in this area for over 30 years, and uh, one of the first couples that piqued my interest in this was back in 1995. Uh, was a, a, a rather tall gentleman uh, and, and um, a woman. Uh, he, uh, the two of them came into my office and actually, just before coming in through the door, he looked down at me, since I'm not so tall, and said, we're the couple from hell. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, welcome to purgatory. And, um, you know, uh, that little joking comeback uh, actually gave me a hint, in a way, to how I was going to end up uh, developing an approach to working with couples who are on the precipice of ending the relationship, which is uh, this notion of experiments and possibility and entering a liminal space in which uh, we spend for the time making decisions about whether to stay or go 
and just try out some new things to gather more data uh, and see uh, if the data reveal uh, more hopefulness, pleasure, and decrease in conflict or not. Uh, so I've been very interested in this work. And as you mentioned, I have a book coming out uh, just in a couple of months, uh, Last Chance Couple Therapy. And um, there are a lot of challenges that are particular to couples in which one or both partners are considering ending the relationship. One of the, the first uh, major challenges is how do we develop a therapeutic alliance with a couple? Let's say we have one partner who is strongly thinking about leaving and the other really wants to save the relationship. Uh, the, the partner who is strongly thinking about leaving may have actually said, you know, I'm only coming for one session. Or maybe even they, their lawyer suggested that they do that. And it's just going to see how it goes. And they're not very motivated. And they're worried that the therapist is going to sort of cheerfully show them how things can get better and assume that with therapy, they'll be ready to recommit to the relationship. And that's a big mistake <laughs> as a therapist uh, to just be the cheerful person who says, well, you know, you've been in a lot of distress, but uh, I've got some things to offer you. Uh, maybe it'll turn things around for you. Instead, we need to validate uh, both partners' goals at the, at the present moment. So the partner who's thinking about leaving, we have to acknowledge this is a real possibility and a real choice. And that, in fact, um, the work that we'll do together is, to, as I said earlier, to try out some new things, change communication and problem-solving behavior to see if they can resolve traumatic experiences that have happened uh, to uh, see if they can overcome violations of, of, of values or safety, for instance, an affair or anything on the continuum of intimidation, aggression, violence, or substance overuse. Uh, we want to uh, you know, take seriously, very seriously, these concerns and acknowledge the possibility that uh, even with trying some new things, therapeutically, uh, that person who's thinking about leaving may still decide to leave. Mm. So it's really important in that first session to state this explicitly, to say, you know, the, what I'm going to do is offer you some ideas and practices that may lead to some improvement. But even if things get better, you still may decide it's not enough uh, and um, you just can't get the love back or whatever the issue is and you want to end things. And each time I introduce this idea to a last chance couple, the partner or partners, because there may be both of them thinking about leaving, who hear this, breathe a sigh of relief. Mm -hmm. uh, and the thing to, to realize is, at least for me, by the time a couple in this um, situation, or circumstance, uh, comes to see us, they've often seen one, two, three, four, my record now is five previous couple therapists. Oh, that's commitment to the relationship right there. That's commitment to the relationship, 
But it also says that they have not had a therapy that's been very helpful. I, in fact, just interviewed a couple last night about starting. And, um, you know, one of the major mistakes that the couple therapists make is just allowing the couple to vent their frustrations and argue like they do at home. And then sort of, as a therapist, jump in and, you know, try to offer solutions or both ends or whatever. And then the next week comes and the same thing happens and uh, not really addressing the fundamental um, interactional problems and attitudes and and, uh, emotional stances that are leading to conflict. So uh, we have to uh, offer the couple opportunities to witness changes that they may uh, not believe are possible. Uh, so uh, we want to introduce this idea um, in the first session that, that we're going to enthusiastically offer some possibilities, but we are not uh, pressuring them to try to stay in the relationship. And in fact, as part of that, we want to invite uh, couples to challenge us if they feel that we are inadvertently pressuring them, if they feel pressured to stay. This is very important, I should say, also for my social location as a cisgendered heterosexual male, if I'm working with a cisgendered heterosexual couple and the woman is thinking about leaving, I don't want her to end up feeling like she's being ganged up on by her husband, male partner, and a male therapist. So when you say pressure, you mean like influencing them in one direction or the other? Is Correct. Yeah, that, that I would sort of subtly be trying to convince her to stay. So I'm going to be enthusiastically offering um, ideas and practices that might help, but I, I literally say don't, don't confuse my enthusiasm for these practices with uh, my intention to keep you in the, in the marriage. I see. That's really important because I, you know, Bill Doherty long ago talked about uh, the, the problem of considering ourselves as neutral about outcomes with couples. And so I, I very clearly say to couples, look, I got into the business of couple therapy because I'm generally uh, interested in helping couples do better as in their relationship and thrive and so forth. Um, but I am um, not here to force you to stay married. <laughs> uh, so if you, so in other words, we want to state our general bias. We generally, as couple therapists, are there to help people improve their relationships. But when you have a couple where one or both partners are seriously thinking about leaving, they're going to be very sensitive to any pressure that we exert to keep them in the relationship when they're still quite ambivalent. So we want to be explicit about our bias and invite the couple to critique us or comment to, to us if they feel that we are inadvertently still trying to kind of move them in a certain direction. The only direction we want to try to help them move in is trying out some new things so they can see for themselves whether things can get better. I see. Another mistake that that I hear, I think a lot of couple therapists make, ju- judging from uh, what clients who've had previous couple therapy tell me, is that the focus is entirely on 
reducing conflict and solving problems. Uh, you know, building good communication skills to reduce conflict, resolving issues, talking about traumatic experiences, experiences that have happened, trying to resolve them, and putting off um, encouraging couples to do small steps towards uh, building back pleasure. So it's almost like we, we have this model which parallels sometimes what couples think, which is until we solve the problems, we can't have fun or pleasure or intimacy with each other. And that's, that's a problematic idea because, in fact, in real life, couples have problems and challenges and also, hopefully, if they're doing well, are able to have pleasure even though they're still struggling with some things. So if the therapy kind of mirrors that problematic assumption, it's not helpful. So even in a first session with, with a, a, a last-chance couple, uh, unless it really seems inappropriate to, to offer this, I will make su suggestions about small things they can do, low-cost, potentially high-yield uh, actions with each other that can I increase a sense of appreciation, friendship, pleasure, and so forth. So, for instance, I take... Uh, you know, John and Julie Gottman's idea about how the importance of partners expressing admiration and appreciation for each other, which dovetails very nicely with positive psychology, by the way. I call it the relational vitamin, <laughs> because so many couples, by the time they come to us, feel like their partner doesn't even see them anymore, never mind appreciate them or admire them or enjoy them. Um, so I suggest... Uh, to couples, even in a first session, if they can do, say, one appreciative or admiring thing uh, to each other. I said, I know that sounds pretty hokey. Um, and in fact, everything I suggest as a new activity is going to feel a bit artificial, maybe even irrational, given how negatively you feel. Like, how can you be saying appreciative things when you're so angry and hurt? Um, so we have to sort of jump over that sense of artificiality and irrationality and kind of just do it and over time if it if it takes and if it seems um, you know worthwhile it will become more natural um, actually many years ago I wrote a little chapter for a book edited by Janice Levine and Howard Markman it was called uh, um, what's the, the Elvis song uh, uh, there it is uh, why do why do fools why do Fools Fall in Love was the name of the book. It's right on my shelf. And I wrote the chapter. It was called Getting a Kick Out of You, as in the Cole Porter song that Frank Sinatra made famous. Getting a Kick Out of You, the Jazz Taoist Key to Love. Mm. And the basic idea in it was that one of the things that sustains love uh, and connection in a couple is, is seeing our partner and enjoying them, getting a kick out of them, not just appreciating what they do for the family, financially, you know, domestic chores and so forth, but that we enjoy them as human beings, hmm. apart from the service that they provide for us right. or the family, right? right? Um, because it's such a common thing, I find, that couples come to us and they, they feel that their partner literally doesn't see them anymore. And they're really jealous when their partner's excited to meet someone at a party or, you know, in a play group or at work, 
Uh, and so helping partners sort of see each other again and get a kick out of each other. Little things like, I love the way your eyes twinkle when you tell a story, you know, or I so admire the way you talk about politics with our friends, or you look so beautiful in the sunlight right now. Like little things. Yeah, that's, that's right. Really little things. And um, so so that that's a really important piece of working with couples in a last chance state, even though it's a big crisis, you know, and the stakes are high. <laughs> in fact, just because of that, we need to help them see if they can restart the pleasure system to turn the Bunsen burner of pleasure back on in small and not threatening ways, like the old date night thing. Not appropriate for the last chance couple right away because they're going to go on a date. They're going to have a meal. They're going to talk about the food and someone's going to not like it and the other one will. And then there'll be a big fight. So right. I usually encourage people to do very small um, but pleasurable things. So I developed another technique called the 60-second pleasure point. So I have couples brainstorm with me all of the fun, pleasurable, even sensual but not sexual things they can do with each other where the activity is 60 seconds or less. And some of these can be done when you're physically together or need to be done when you're physically together, like a short massage or holding hands or looking into each other's eyes or, you know, even a hug, you know, rubbing each other's head, tap on the butt, whatever, um, feeding each other a piece of chocolate or fruit or something like that. And some of them can be done when you're apart using those often intrusive devices they get in the way of a couple time you know our phones and our computers right. so a nice text or a photo one of my favorite things is take a close-up photo of an object in your space and send it to your partner and say what is it <laughs> sort of like a guessing game top of a fire hydrant or the edge of a shelf or something like that right and so then i i suggest that couples if they're up for it try to do six of these 60 second pleasure points across the day so it's like six minutes or less two in the morning with each initiating one before they depart from each other to when they're apart even if they're still in sort of post-pandemic homebound work in separate spaces you know doing something when they're um you know um, at least psychologically apart and two when they're back together so each time with each of them initiating one so it's six minutes or less that's not a lot of time yeah, and it's really nice. Partners do it. And suddenly they realize that um, even though they're on the edge of ending things, they're often able to start generating some pleasure. Because let's face it, when we meet our partner, get excited about them, it's not like we look across the room in a certain setting and say, you know, it seems like a person I could solve problems with for the rest of my life. We're attracted to them intellectually, spiritually. Uh, aesthetically, um, sexually, so forth. So if we, if we as therapists don't try to help couples experiment with possibilities of reinvigorating their pleasure with each other, we're not really doing effective work. We're not helping them see the possibilities uh, that exist for repairing things and, and you know, enjoying each other again. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I, I love how you're illustrating some of the practices you have couples get into together. And if I, if you don't mind me asking, Peter, because I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, full disclosure, I've been drawn to your work um, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, I really 
enjoy couples work in general for myself or like in my practice, but I also uh, do a lot of work in the domestic violence world. And at least some of my, by my, if I had to make like a broader opinion-based assessment, the gap between couples counseling and what's possible in couples counseling and people ending up in the DV services world is troubling. And in some ways I'm interested in how couples counselors might expand the scope of what's possible in the work to maybe limit people finding themselves in the hands and clutches of law enforcement or criminal justice systems and the ways that couple counselors could be doing this. So your work around like the last ditch efforts and kind of those like final moments before things get really bad, I'm really drawn to. That said, I guess there's a way where I'm curious about how it is, if I could just kind of take you back to the beginning, like as you're meeting with these couples and there's like all this energy and intensity in the relationship and this last ditch effort, how are you kind of making assessments for hope or possibility or preference when they're in the liminality, I guess, if I could call it that, of tension and conflict together? Like, in other words, like, where do you even start <laughs> when a couple comes in? Yeah. Well, you're asking a few questions. So let, let me go back to the first yeah, issue, please. which is interpersonal violence. Um, so there's actually a chapter in my book uh, where I summarize, mostly summarize uh, the work of the, the people that I have found most compelling uh, and that guide my work with, when there's been uh, violence or any any behavior on the aggression intimidation uh, continuum. And I take all of that seriously, you know, threatening looks and so all the way to actual physical violence. So the work of uh, the Couples and Violence Project at Ackerman, to me, still stands as the most um, integrative, nuanced um, work out there. And that's the work of Virginia Goldner, Marcia Scheinberg, um, Peggy Penn, and Jillian Walker. Uh, particularly Virginia led that group and has continued to write about it. So I'm, uh, <laughs> that would be a whole nother podcast and probably one, I mean, I'm, Happy to talk about that, but it's it just yeah. I don't, I don't mean another, to get you stuck on another that. hour, but but I, I very much draw on their work, and of course Sandy Stith's work, yes. also. Who you know, was, was interviewed on this podcast a couple? Yeah, wonderful, sessions. wonderful work. So yeah. both both of their models, and I think they're very complementary, um, are helpful. I mean, you know, um, I mean, one of the issues we're, we're always dealing with in couples, whether they're in a last chance place or not, are power issues. And, and these are often gendered in cisgen, uh, cisgendered heterosexual couples. But I've also worked with queer couples where there are other dimensions that lead to power discrepancies. Um, so, you know, power issues come up in all sorts of couples. Well, if I and could tag fact, on, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I wonder if I could tag yeah, on right here. Because you're, I guess, I guess in some ways, like, what you were describing in your work and like inviting pleasure, there was like a playfulness in how you're describing your work. Yeah. And it feels like a lot of the couples counseling discourse often, I don't know, this is my own take. So forgive me. It feels like it starts in a little bit of more fear-based place. Like, yeah. and, and I'm curious how it is that you're moving from assessments that are critical but also like interested in like you're like examining glances and how power is moving and safety and violence. 
how it is that you're moving from that zone into like inviting playful interactions and noticing yeah. pleasure. Well, well, look, there's, there's, let me back up and say that in, in my thinking, there, there are five, well, five, uh, last chance scenarios and yeah. a couple may inhabit more than one. So it's not five types of last chance couples, but five um, situations that often are lead to a last chance uh, moment. One is uh, the couples that I mostly had in mind as I was talking um, about building pleasure right away. And that's high conflict couples where there's no violence, uh -huh. um, but, um, but a lot of conflict and a second that also I have in mind uh, when I talk about right away building pleasure is uh, those couples that come in in a low passion, low desire place, which may have been preceded by you know months or years of conflict, and at this point they're just so turned down in terms of their it's low passion, passion, like they're tired, like kind of done. they're tired and they're scared. They're scared to connect uh, because sex hasn't been great or you know, intimacy leads to conflict, so they've kind of just really lost that love and feeling, as the Righteous Brothers <laughs> sang. Actually, probably in some ways the hardest couples to, to work with, because you can't, there's no technique, you know, or idea per se that can just directly increase people's desire for each other. You can do a lot of things around that, and we can work on sex, and I certainly... Um, you know, follow the work of Esther Perel and Suzanne Iacenza and others um, very closely and incorporate some of my own ideas. But but there's, there's also uh, couples uh, in which there have been violations of values or safety. Uh -huh. uh, and so, I, you know, I work a lot with couples where there's been an affair or other forms of extra dyadic sex. And also with couples where there's been violence or, as I said, intimidation and aggression and couples where there's been substance overuse or abuse. So it, it, with, when it comes to value violations, I don't, in a first session, start suggesting, you know, pleasure-based activities. It's, you know, there's basically been some pretty traumatic stuff going on. And across all three of those types of value violations, affairs, violence, and substance use, um, you know, the, the, the first thing that needs to happen is the person who uh, did the affairing or has been violent or aggressive or is abusing uh, substances has to take 100% responsibility for their behavior. And, you know, we're going to develop, uh, as I learned from Virginia and, and that group, you know, develop a, a coherent explanation for, you know, why they did the things that they did but we're going to distinguish that from an excuse, right? So, that, so before I would start encouraging any kind of pleasure stuff, we have to work on the trauma and the, and the problem, very deeply problematic behavior that's being perpetrated by one, sometimes both, but usually one partner. So, you know, there's not one kind of last chance situation. Of course, different, yes. different things are needed uh, for different... Uh, so I said there's a fifth category. So basically, so high conflict, you know, with polarized complementarities, basically polarizations, uh, value violations. Um, actually, 
I'm going to mention this one. Couples that are mismatched in project what I call projected life chronologies. There may, be, may not be a lot of conflict per se, but they, they have come to find that they have very different ideas about whether or when, in particular, when to make a formal commitment, marriage or otherwise, or when to have a child. They both say they want to have a child, but they have very different ideas about when, uh-huh. or even things like when to move out of a city like New York and you know move to a different place. They may agree in principle on something. So these couples are discrepant in kind of what they want in their lives or by when. So that's all another category uh, that I that I write about in this book and, and have thought about for many years around issues around time and couples. Then, as I said, there's the low passion, low connection couples. And then finally, couples, uh, you see this less often, but every once in a while, a, a couple where one partner is kind of starting to get to know themselves more and work on themselves more. They often are in an individual therapy that's been very helpful to them. And they're coming to feel like they can't kind of learn to be who they are in this relationship. They're not necessarily deciding that they want to end it completely, but they they want to somehow figure out a way to take a break from the relationship to develop themselves as people more. And, you know, that's also an interesting and challenging uh, kind of couple to work with. So... Uh, that was kind of around, I think, one of your questions, but how do we get started? So, obviously, we want to hear what the presenting problem is. I mean, basic stuff uh, that we do in any kind of couple therapy. So, if, if there's been an affair or there's been violence, or there's, we're going to be starting to work on that if the couple comes in and says... Are you doing that we together? Just, we, do I work with them together from the beginning? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, in this, in this approach, I always want to have... Um, both partners in for usually up to three sessions, but it's flexible. If uh, uh, up to three sessions, and then meet with each individually to, to provide them an opportunity for a confidential individual meeting, cool. and then at the end of that confidential meeting, I'll I'll say, you know, is there anything you think we should bring back to you know the couple work, and is there anything you particularly don't want me to mention? or say that I know from what we just talked about. So we make that a decision about what the, what the partner wants to bring back and what they really want to keep private. And if there's something you want to keep private, of course I want to explore why they want to keep it private and what they feel the risk is of bringing it up. Yeah. Uh, and actually that whole process is uh, something that I drew from uh, the work I did with Marsha and Fiona uh, in our uh, family-based treatment of incest, where we developed this idea of a decision dialogue, where we would meet with the abused child, the child had been abused, you know, have a confidential session with her um, and say, you know, we'll, 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 this is really a private uh, talk, but at the end we'll talk about what do you want to bring back to the session with your mom. And um, and if they say, well, I don't want to say that, we explore what will What's your concern? It's often, well, my mom will be angry to hear that I still love my stepfather or that there was this other abuse that happened or so we work it out. Anyway, not to get off too far in that, but that's the source of this format is, uh, you know, going to meet with people individually, of course, give them a chance to 
to speak. Um, you're honoring the preference. You're honoring the preference, but also exploring the stance. Exactly right. So, you know, I, I like it used to be maybe twenty years ago that sometimes in an individual meeting like that, uh, a partner would say, "Yeah, my partner." Um, or me, with the partner themselves, uh, has a serious drug issue that the other partner doesn't know. That's rare these days. <laughs> Partners seem to always know. Same thing with affairs. I, I can't remember the last time a partner revealed an affair in one of those individual sessions. They're typically coming in because the affair's been discovered. I see. Right. So. How do you think that is? Is that like a technology thing or whatever? That's probably just too big of a question to ask. That's all another another podcast too of like working with podcast, infidelity yeah. and, uh, and but I do have a whole chapter on that and you know I draw a lot on you know my own work but also Esther's work uh, Michelle Shankman Janice Abrams Spring um, um, uh, uh, what's Christina Coop Gordon and a lot of people have written great stuff on that so you know I'm all about honoring the great contributions of <laughs> of our colleagues yeah. uh, and you know adding my own. 10 cents, you know, where, you know, my own creativity or blending, uh, where I well, can, but, uh, I do know you're a jazz drummer so that there's something iterative about that process that feels, well, that's right. You know, powerful. like borrow a little bit from Elvin Jones, a little from Buddy Rich and a little from, uh, you know, that's the artistry, right? Bernard Purdy. Right. And add my two cents in myself. Well, I have to, I have to say, Peter, I'm uh, really appreciating how you're sharing this and, couple things I'm drawn to one and I I guess maybe I'll just ask the questions and you can choose the direction one I guess I'm drawn to your discussion of pleasure and how it is that you're conceptualizing pleasure and how yeah I guess I'm curious about how you are utilizing pleasure in the work you're doing with couples if that's an okay question because I'm kind of thinking about some of Spinoza's discussion about pleasure and pain if you're familiar (laughs) with some of that stuff like I love Spinoza, but I don't remember what he said about pleasure and pain. He said something like that. I have a little quote here that I'll read. It says, rather than pleasure as a temporary temporary release from a lack of something, and pain is not having that thing you want, pleasure rather as the augmentation of the body's capacity to act, and pain as a diminution of it. So wondering if there's ways that pleasure and pain are some ways that you're tracking the possibilities. I, I might be going a little bit too far with this. Um, well, well let, let me let me take a different angle on this, which is yeah. I think that therapy, even in a crisis situation, as soon as possible, it's it is so relieving and stimulating of genuine therapeutic creativity to have fun in the therapy. Yes. Um, so and and you know I I, I feel like. This is, I guess, part of using myself as a therapist. You know, I, I like to have fun. I'm a serious guy, too, and I can be very serious. Um, but when there's an opportunity to quote a song and even sing it in a lounge lizard voice to a couple or <laughs> use one of my, you know, voice impressions or something, you know, I, I will do it. Um, and... Uh, I think what it, those moments do is it's kind of like, a, you know, in theater, like a fourth wall moment, you know, where you break the frame 
of what people often expect couple therapy to be, where the couple comes in, they're very serious, they've got problems, the therapist is very serious and very earnest and very caring and blah, blah, blah. And I think that's a very constraining thing. I mean, of course, we want to be serious and caring and earnest, of course, of course. but if that's it, 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 it is subtly pathologizing. Yeah, like you know, it's, it's dictating the affects of the room or something. Yeah, and, and that you, it, it communicates without quite saying it, that you as the therapist see them as, a, as basically people with problems as opposed to people who are struggling with challenges but have many other assets and abilities. And this is certainly something that I think, you know, the whole area of narrative therapy has been so helpful in, in terms of externalizing problems and rehumanizing, right. helping people feel rehumanized and seen just as human beings, you know, and not us as therapists and them as clients, but we're people together. They've got some challenges and we've got some experience and expertise um, based on experience uh, with asking questions and suggesting things. And we can have a, a much less hierarchical kind of relationships. So, you know, for instance, in my first session with a couple, I will always ask each partner what they do during the day um, for work. And if someone has, you know, not been working for a while and elected to be home with kids for a while. I'll always ask that person about that, but also what kind of work were they doing before they had kids? Uh, and I always ask the question that, that clients find partners find very, um, surprising that I ask it and they like it, which is what about you, your talents, your abilities, your sensitivities, your proclivities um, do you bring to this work when you feel like you're doing it well? So here they are coming in and telling me that I'm their last chance, that this therapy is the last chance, and there's all sorts of issues. And I'm saying, well, before we get into those you know, challenges that you're facing, I just want to find out a little bit of what you do. And I show genuine enthusiasm for what they do. And I've, there's always a reason to be enthusiastic. I got a couple I worked with where the guy had not finished uh, high school it was learning disabled. This is all I learned this all in the first phone call with his wife. And she said, like, he's never been in therapy. He's not really up for it that much. You know, he never finished school. He might be a bit intimidated and all this stuff. And I said, well, look forward to meeting him. So this guy was a master boiler mechanic. It took him a while to actually admit that he had been doing it, and he said he was a boiler mechanic, but as he told the stories of what he does, it turned out that he's like the guy that people call <laughs> oh, yeah. all over New York City when boilers can't be fixed. He's a, he's a genius at it. And I said to him, and I meant this genuinely, you know, I really admire what you do. I said, if a boiler goes off in my house, I'm like, I don't know what to do. I'm always afraid I'm going to turn the screw the wrong way, and he started laughing. And sort of straightened up in his chair. And I said, no, I really appreciate it. And at some point later in the therapy, he made some comment about how he wasn't, you know, that smart. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a book smart guy and all that stuff. And I said, look, man, it's called Tom. Look, there's different kinds of intelligence. You know, mine is this. Yours is what you do. I don't judge. And he liked that. So, you know, 
And this is in the presence of the partner, right? And in the presence of the partner. And I do the same with her. You know, she was a top-level administrative assistant. But, you know, they, so, so it's, it's this idea of meeting people as human beings and then diving into their challenges. And it's maybe, you know, slicing words a little thin, but I prefer asking couples about the challenges that they're facing rather than their problems. There's something about the term problem that has a deep, a heavier anchor on it to me, metaphorically, you know, and we ask about challenges, like everybody's got challenges. So, you know, what are the challenges that you're facing? So, so I guess in answer to your question, like it's Sally Ababa talks about this too, so beautifully about bringing a playful spirit. She's, you know, Sally, she's such a playful person. So, you know, I think that, um, that attitude brings a tremendous amount of relief. And of course, I'm not doing comedy. I mean, well, sometimes they do a little comedy with my friends, but, <laughs> but only, only, you know, it's serious stuff we're dealing with, right? right. Well, but, I- but there's something about humor. Even Freud said it, like humor is the greatest defense, he said. So when we can laugh at situations a little bit appropriately and not in a mocking way, that's, right. of course, right. never. Then we're all side by side, if you will, me and the partners looking at the problems and saying, isn't life crazy, you know? Yes. And they see that I'm a human being and I, they see that I see them as human beings. So humor helps a lot. And along that, and then I'll shut up, is, you know, people <laughs> come into therapy and they put their head in their hand and they go, <sighs> we know that marriage is hard work. And couple therapy is hard work. It's hard work. And I say, you know what? I actually don't aspire. I don't agree with um, that idea about marriage is hard work. I think actually intimate relationships can really be pretty easy. Um, you know, and it can be very hard. But with certain kinds of skills and ways of being with each other and attitudes, um, things can go pretty easy. And I hope uh-huh. I can help you see some paths forward to that. I don't buy the marriage and therapy is hard work thing at all. Not at all. Yeah, I, I'm really appreciating that. I'm, I've always struggled with that discourse of like marriage is hard and the ball mm. and chain. It feels like connected to that whole world of constructing marriage as a problem. Uh, yeah, yeah and, and there's a way that I'm, I mean, it feels really present in my own work that like laughter and playfulness allow for physiology to make so much other conversation possible. Yeah, well, you strike being also interviewed as a, as a very playful person, so I'm sure. And of course, you know, we know a lot of our colleagues are like Tim Bima. I mean, you know, he must be a riot to work with because yeah. he's such a funny guy. So, you know, uh, I think that's a tremendous asset. Jay Lappin is another person who has a great sense of humor uh, and therapy. So, um, Esther, definitely Esther Perel. She can yeah. be very funny. Yeah, I've seen well, her work. So. I, I never want you to shut up because I'm really appreciating everything you're saying. Uh-oh. It's really useful. And we're kind of like nearing at the end of our time. And yeah. I did want to kind of ask if it's okay, like, because you've been in this work for a while. And you obviously have like a very um, rigorous, well-researched approach to the work that you're doing, which I really value. I'm sure uh, the couples you work with do too. Kind of curious over the decades of work you've done, like what you've, what ideas have kind of emerged, what's changed? Like I'm curious as you think of that guy that walked in and you told him you're in purgatory, 
to like your intake last night like how have your ideas evolved or changed oh gosh that really big question yeah so much um I mean, I always, you know, I started teaching at Ackerman in the early 90s, the, the first year theory course. And, um, you know, by you teach one theoretical approach and then another. And by the third one, students were like, ah, how are we going to pull this together? You know, and I struggle with that myself. So I, I've always felt that there are a lot of smart people and caring people in our field. And they come up with really great work. And I believe that in our fields we need to have the theories get along <laughs> so I've always been interested in um, a multi-perspectival approach to to couple therapy and honoring um, the work and the legacies of all the really useful um, approaches um, rather than being competitive and one-upping each other that drives me nuts like we need to have peace and harmony and collaboration in our, in our field, because we're here to help people and we want to draw on all the resources. So, so you know, the, as I've been in the field all these years, I've learned more and more about, you know, different approaches and integrated those without getting into the details of, of how I've done that. I've developed an approach called the Therapeutic Palette Integrative Approach. It's actually a little chapter in, uh, in the new handbook of uh, clinical handbook of a couple therapy is very honored to be uh, included in that. Certainly, again, we kind of talked about talking about this at the beginning uh, before we started this talk, but the whole issue about addressing issues of social location, oppression, privilege, uh, culture have been very, very interesting to me. I actually teach uh, multicultural issues in counseling here at City College. Cool. And... uh, I, I love teaching that course. It's it's very experiential, um, and I've gotten interested. I mentioned to you before we started the podcast that I have a little uh, case study coming out in the Networker the next issue on intracultural cultural differences. <laughs> and without getting into the details, but this is a last chance couple, uh, Bengali American. She was raised in in Queens. Um, he was raised in, uh, in England. Um, they're both upper middle class, highly educated. Uh, so when they met each other on a, on a dating site for South Asian people, they felt like perfectly matched. And then as they got to know each other and were falling in love, they also had tremendous differences, which turned out to be in large part differences in is that, as the guy said, how they were being Bengali, <laughs> right? You know, and so you know, the whole interest in the link between identity and culture is such so interesting and so nuanced, really, when you start mm-hmm. getting into it. Um, so you know, he talked about being British Bengali, and as opposed to her you know, desire to spend every Saturday cooking and hanging out and chatting and so forth with family, which she said is, she described as typical Bengali. He got very annoyed with that. He said, well, that's your kind of typical Bengali. My kind of typical Bengali was this British style um, where we rarely talked about our feelings. We would sit at the dinner table and my father would say to me and my brother and sister, so what have you learned today in school? And we had to report and I never went to any either of my parents for soothing. 
where she would frequently. So they have very different ideas about talking about feelings, somewhat, you know, mediated also by gender differences, but it was, it's like gender plus subcultural differences that led to their differences in desire for expressing emotions and vulnerability. And also we got into a lot of issues around uh, the time pie, like how they wanted to spend time. She wanted to spend a lot of time with her family. He found himself being depleted by all that. Again, we don't have time to get into the TISO, but I'm very interested in looking at the nuances of people's connection with culture and their social locations. Um, In in my book, I have another wonderful couple that I worked with, African-American, where both raised, you know, uh, lower middle class, both raised in the church. But over time, she became disaffected with the church and was becoming um, interested in pantheistic beliefs and more open sexuality than what she had learned about. And he felt that the church still held very important guidelines for him as a black man trying to disprove racist beliefs about black men, very responsible, worked in the government and so forth. So they had widely different right. relationships with their culture of origin and right. with even with their social location and as, as, um, as black persons and racism and so forth. So I think when we get into the nuances of all that, it's fascinating and very helpful to, to couples. So I, I thank all oh, the colleagues, uh, Paulette Hines and Ken Hardy and Nina Garcia Preto and Monica McGoldrick and Nancy Boyd Franklin and Marlene Watson and all who I've learned so much from and many others, I should say. Of course, so. yeah. Well, I, I'm just like appreciating your invitation to folks to follow their curiosity into discerning the idiosyncrasies of families and not just like stopping at cultural frames or borders. Yeah. I'm also like really appreciating the richness in which you describe your work and the fun and playfulness necessary and also the very intentional, like I said earlier, intentional rigor in constructing and crafting some scholarly ideas from the improv and practice of your work. So thanks for sharing that with us today here. You're welcome, Navi. I'm pleased to be here and glad we had a chance to talk. Yeah, and for folks listening, uh, like I mentioned in uh, Peter's bio, there's a large body of literature you can follow. There's a lot of talks he's done, and he has a book coming out right now. Do you mind mentioning the name again, Peter? Yeah, I'll mention it in my announcer's voice. Yeah, I've got a book coming out. <laughs> okay, enough silliness. Last yeah. chance couple therapy, bringing relationships back from the brink. That's good. Nice. Well, thank you so much for being here today, and <laughs> I really like your announcer voice. I might have to adopt it or try it on. Okay. Thanks again.